Joseph Curry is an English professor at St. Francis Xavier University in Antigonish, Nova Scotia, Canada. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Glad to be here. Again. Again. It's always a pleasure to speak with you, Nigel. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about both Hamlet and King Lear, some of the themes that are evident in both plays. These are the giants, of course, of, well, the giants, period, really, not just Shakespeare, but Western literature and world literature, really. They do share a couple of themes. One, of course, is the problem of succession. Uh, obviously, the differences are also quite uh, prominent. For example, in, in Hamlet, a murdered king, and Claudius, who, who is now the new king of Denmark, is, uh, is obviously a, a usurping monarch. So he's not supposed to be there. In the sense that, by divine right, the king should be someone who, who rightly belongs there as God's representative on earth, and, and a murderer is not a proper king. Uh, Although we don't, Hamlet isn't certain of this fact, and nor are we right. till. Uh, yeah, there's a bit of doubt at the beginning, obviously, and Horatio, you know, famously is, is skeptical, right? And, and that poses a lot of problems, of course, too, because we have uh, a religious dimension to Hamlet that that is rather strange in the sense that the ghost, when he comes back to tell Hamlet to vent this foul deed, ghost uh, from purgatory, that's a Catholic theology. Uh, purgatory is not Protestant. Protestant church had decided that uh, purgatory is not, a, is not proper theology. And so, obviously, uh, you know, Hamlet and Horatio studying in Wittenberg, studying in a Lutheran <laughs> center, <laughs> well, that's a problem, too, for, for the Protestants uh, of England because they had decided that they were Calvinists. So, so you have the three religions combating each other, if you will. And, and so, uh, obviously, the, you know, these are problems that are not as prominent in, in King Lear. There, the problem of succession is different because it's the king himself who decided that he will no longer be king. Now, he did say, of course, you know, I will retain the title. Foolishly. Yeah, I mean, you know, but, but not the administrative stuff. It's like saying a woman is a little bit pregnant. You're either a king or you're not, right? So he, he wants to try to retrieve his title, and that's really at the core of the play. And he becomes mad, and then he, he needs to uh, regain his sanity and, and of course, also uh, at the same time try to regain his title. So the problem of succession, very different perspectives, but mm -hmm. nonetheless at the heart of both plays. The other additional element that's prominent is that Hamlet is an Elizabethan play, whereas King Lear is a Jacobean play. And that's important too because Elizabeth at this point, 1600-1601, we're not sure exactly which year it was written, Hamlet, but regardless, she was old and no heir, the, the Virgin Queen, right? And, mm -hmm. and so we know that they had been trying to get her to name an heir for long time and of course she had refused and refused and refused and she only named James much later and of course we have to remember that she's the one who had killed James's mother Mary Queen of Scots mm -hmm. you know in the 1580s right so it's also interesting that the whole of Henry VIII's reign what drove him was exactly the same thing absolutely and of course the great irony there is, is you know he wanted a boy and he had his boy Edward uh, but of course the most famous was Elizabeth right you know the mm -hmm. the illegitimate child and of course she had made her legitimate later on but uh, for a number of years she wasn't uh, considered legitimate right he was so intent on this or intent enough to disband the Catholic Church in England. Yeah, and that too, of course, is something that makes its way into Shakespeare's plays, probably most famously in Measure for Measure. 
what Henry did was to uh, not only take over all the monasteries and nunneries, and, and that of course you know, meant income for him, but also uh, what I would call the demarianization of England. And what I mean by that is the idea of Mary as the Virgin uh, Mother, and uh, you know that's very Catholic-centered worship. Henry, part of what he wanted to do was to move away from Catholicism in almost every way possible. One of them, of course, getting rid of monasteries and nunneries and celibacy. Right? Celibacy is uh, uh, represented obviously through through Mary and Jesus, um, uh, and, and virginity, of course, through Mary was too Catholic, and again, obviously we're passing through this very quickly, it's much more complicated than, than uh, we're suggesting, but nonetheless, the, the core of it is there. And, and so you, you, know, you have them try to de-Catholicize England through a lot of these powerful symbols. The idea of celibacy was going to be taken away. The clergy in, in England are allowed to marry the, the Anglicans. So what you have here is the attempt by, by Henry to remove um, any kind of uh, powerful Catholic symbology. And ironically, uh, this is sort of the point, Elizabeth, of course, made use of the Virgin image of the Virgin Queen. In a way, that's Catholic. Well, that's because the English, even though religiously they were getting rid of the idea of virginity as, as, the, as the only ideal, nonetheless, the people retained that, uh, you know, you can't change a culture overnight. It's only yeah. a matter of the end of Henry's reign mm -hmm. and when Shakespeare started to write, it was... 50, 60. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't that long. Uh, Elizabeth, when she, uh, I mean, she was a very long-serving monarch, right? I mean, she dies in 1603. She had Mary, Queen of Scots, killed in 1587, I believe it was, sometime around then. But she ruled, she ruled for a very long time. So how does this relate then to the idea of succession? Well, the problem um, in Hamlet is, all right. So who's going to be the new monarch? Well, Eliz Elizabeth was. Also, I mean, that, that was the, the, you know, the question that was asked, well, who's going to be the new monarch there when she dies? Yeah. She's not married, she doesn't have an heir, she hasn't named anybody, mm -hmm. and she banned chatter about who's going to replace her, right? And of course, she was a very powerful monarch, so you, know, you, you can't say to her, well, you know, your highness, you know, we can't do that. Well, yeah, she could, and she did. Now, obviously, there was chatter going on. So that was one of the questions, is who's going to replace her? Just as when Hamlet Sr. dies, who was going to replace him? Well, when they discovered that it was a usurping monarch in the sense that he killed him and took the throne himself, well, okay, we get rid of him, but then who's going to replace him? And Claudius proves to be a good king in the sense that, you know, he was making peace. That's um, right, he's not a warmonger. That's right. You know, Hamlet Sr. was a warrior king, mm -hmm. uh, without question. Uh, he was like Fortinbras, in other words. Now there's a wonderful irony here in that by the end of Hamlet, the play Hamlet, the person who becomes the king is of course Fortinbras Jr. And that final accomplishment is exactly what would have happened had Hamlet Sr. lost to Fortinbras Sr. So there's a wonderful irony there in that it was all for naught that Hamlet Sr. makes this war in the sense. Denmark ends up being part of the Norwegian monarchy and, and so the, there's, a, there's a certain sadness about that too. Which of course Hamlet uh, Jr. approves of. Uh, remember he says, you know, I give my vote to, to Fortinbras. Now in Lear it's, it's different in that Lear is a Jacobean play. So James is since 1603, he's the new King of England and Scotland. What were the dates on Hamlet then? Hamlet was Hamlet was probably 1600, 1601. Okay. Um, King Lear is probably late 1605. We're not 100% sure, but it sounds about right. James is a fairly new monarch. James, of course, is the new patron, you know, the kinsman, uh, right? Shakespeare was famously part of the coronation procession uh, with his new liveries from King James. James, first of all, just to contextualize it a bit more, 
James had co had come to the throne and he famously re-emphasizes the idea of divine right of kings. This question is posed in not just Hamlet but certainly in King Lear. What makes a king? Who is it who can tell me who I am? Every inch a king, King Lear says. Well, what does that really mean? Well, nature's above art in that respect, he says. Well, again, what does that mean? Well, basically what he's saying is that we are born kings. One is naturally a king, but in practice does that actually work? Through convention, in other words, if someone comes and kills you, you're no longer a king, are you? Or even if it's your daughter who takes over your throne, well, you're no longer a king. I mean, she kicks him out. Well, how is it she can accomplish that, kicking him out? If it's your divine well, right. Certainly, mm -hmm. and, and doesn't that mean that you have to have power? Well, clearly she had, uh, both of them, of course, had managed to erode, uh, that is to say, Regan and, and uh, Donald, to erode the numbers of his knights. Well, why is he so upset, and, and why do they want to get rid of the knights? So there's a very practical reason for it. Knights, 100 knights, they're a symbol of his power as king, mm. because they're supposed to serve their lord, right? Both the lord, capital L, and of course the earthly lord as well. The earthly lord represents the lord. So for him, it's a symbol of natural divine right as king. Much then, more than a symbol, though. It's also a, a concrete... Yes. Expression of power. Certainly. And, and of course, that's why they're upset, because mm. a knight is the medieval equivalent of a Sherman tank, and a hundred knights can't take over a castle. Essentially, what you have here is uh, a realization by the two wicked sisters that, you know, if we want actually to become kings or queens in Cornwall and Albany, then we can't have someone who can take away our power. This is at a very practical level. Mm. Now, What's fascinating about King Lear, the play King Lear, is it was written for during James's reign. Uh, I won't say for James, but certainly you know there is an yeah, understanding that James is there. Mm -hmm. I remember James is, is the king of, of England and Scotland, and that's very significant because King Lear is actually not the king of England; he's the king of Britain, Cornwall, and Albany. Uh, Albany is is the old name for Scotland. So it is actually almost a United Kingdom. It's not quite the United Kingdom as we understand it today, but certainly a United Kingdom of, of that day. Whereas Hamlet, it was just England, right? It was written mm -hmm. f for an English queen, and that's all. Now, obviously, Denmark is an elected monarchy. England wasn't. Certainly, Scotland was. So there was already talk about James probably, you know, becoming the, the king of, of of England. But you know, that will take us too far afield. But King Lear is the king of a united kingdom, so it included Scotland. Albany in those days included Scotland. So, so, so in other words, there is an awareness that this is more than just England, right? Yeah. That obviously would have appealed to James, for sure. And, and so what you have is a King Lear who basically makes a mistake, a huge mistake. He actually blasphemes. He commits an act of treason against God in the sense that he gives up his title to rule in God's place because mm. the idea there the divine right meant uh, you know the, the famous king's two bodies you're there not just to represent your your mortal self but also God on earth and that meant in those days it was understood to mean that you retain your duty to God until God decides otherwise which is to say until death to deny that to oppose that is to blaspheme so it was a, a foolish act, certainly, an act of madness if you prefer, certainly an act of blasphemy against God. He wouldn't have seen it that way, though. That's his folly in that he says, you know, I will retain the title and all the additions of king, but, but you know, I just won't bother with the, the administrative stuff, the practical stuff. Well, 
that's not move that good way. enough. It doesn't work that way. And of course, uh, if he had read Machiavelli, he would have understood that. The idea of the divine right of kings was being challenged uh, and had been challenged for some years now. And that's famously challenged by Edmund in, in the play, right? Mm -hmm. Edmund says, you know, why am I considered base? You know, just because I, I'm not legitimate? Well, who determines that? Naturally, I'm, I'm just as handsome, I'm just as powerful, I'm just as smart as my brother. Why am I not considered le legitimate? Why shouldn't I have land? And that, of course, challenges the idea of natural right. In other words, convention has determined that I don't get this land. Not my natural ability. My natural ability, my na you know, uh, as I'm a man equal. who is handsome and powerful and, can, and shrewd, you know, I can get my land. And he does. We know he does. And famously, he says, you know, I, I mean to do good despite of my own nature, right? You know, towards the end, just before he dies, right? Mm. In other words, I choose to do good. It's a choice. We can easily do bad or good. Uh, that is a choice. No one is naturally anything. It's always a choice that you make. Natural is it not natural? That we can get into a long philosophical debate about that. But, but the point is that kings are made. They're not born. Is what he's saying. Or should be. Or should be. But he he himself wants to make himself right. Uh, and and he succeeds. I mean, he gets the land, he's about to get one of the sisters, or both the sisters, I mean, we know he's been switching uh, between them, and therefore he can become the king of England, uh, or, or the United Kingdom as, as Britain, basically, as it was in, in, in the play. I guess the point that, that I want to emphasize, you know, the, the idea of the divine right of kings is being challenged. Does that mean that Shakespeare opposes it? I won't say that. I don't think that's the case. But it's certainly something that's been challenged, uh, and, and that's because it was challenged in, in the literature and in, in the political philosophy of the day. It was very much challenged. I mean, most famously by, by Machiavelli, you know, who was very well widely read in England, certainly by the literati and, and the elite, Elizabeth and, and a number of her cabinet, uh, they owned copies. The question is, maybe the divine right isn't necessarily questioned, but who determines the mm. line of succession? Who has the divine right in Hamlet? Is it Claudius or is it Hamlet? Obviously, the complexity there is that Hamlet says at one point, you know, he's standing in my way of becoming king. Did Claudius become king because he married Gertrude, or did he become <coughs> king because the council had... The, the council uh, has a say, because remember, it's an elected monarch. Uh, unlike England, uh, Denmark, and, and Scotland, too. I mean, remember in Macbeth, right? The, you know, the lords have to, the Danes mm -hmm. have to approve. Mm -hmm. Similar to Scotland. Kind of a, a paradox, then. If there's a divine right, mm -hmm. then that divinity is mm -hmm. determined by human beings. Absolutely. Means. Supposedly, then, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, allows for that to happen, right? You know, you could certainly make that argument. The answer to my question, though, is it was a council, then, that determined that Claudius should become the yes, king? They or have or to, the yeah. fact that he married Gertrude, which... That, that's a really interesting question, and I'm not sure that we can actually answer it with certainty, because yeah. apparently Gertrude and, and he were sleeping together before yes. uh, Hamlet Sr. Uh, dies, right? Remember one, the one. gifts are given and that kind of stuff. But the court has to approve for sure. They have to formalize the election. My theory is that Polonius uh, and he were in on it beforehand. Can we prove that? Not sure. I mean, that's the brilliance of the play, right? Is It's a wonderful detective story, and obviously one could debate it forever. But uh, I've certainly never believed that Polonius was a foppish character. I've always mm. thought that he was astute and that he played the role of a foppish character. Mm. You're not going to become Lord Chancellor if you're dumb. At any rate, the question is, what is very clear in, in the first act is that the court supports Claudius. 
He succeeds in making peace and so on and so forth. It's clear that he's in control. He obviously uses the spy network very well, which, by the way, Elizabeth was famous for, yeah. right? Her spy network, you know, through Sir Francis Walsingham, who is unfortunately characterized in a rather strange uh, and, and totally false way in, in the movie, Elizabeth, but nonetheless, he was a very effective spy master. But you have Claudius, who is obviously an effective monarch, who has the support of the court. Now, philosophers, political theorists who talk about the divine right and say, no, that's just great in talk, but it's not in practice. That's not how the world works. Again, Machiavelli would be obviously the one most famous for this, but there were others. They, they would argue, well, that's just negotiation. That's how you, you, you make pacts, right? You make promises, pay off people, you know, any means uh, necessary to, mm. to become the master. And clearly Claudius has that ability. Now, Hamlet says Claudius stands in his way, uh, in Hamlet's way of, of becoming the king. Now, later on, Claudius says, you know, I get rid of him except the general population likes him. So he, he is aware of the power of public opinion. And that, of course, speaks to the question of public opinion versus court opinion, which are not always synonymous. Mm -hmm. The court seems to support Claudius. The public seems to support Hamlet. Later on, of course, Shakespeare also points out to the fact that it's changeable opinion, because later on the population supports Laertes. Right? Mm -hmm. You, you know. to go back to Henry. His first wife, Catherine, had the support of the public. Absolutely, yeah. and, and that's the very important factor. I mean, that arises in a number of Shakespeare's plays, of mm -hmm. course, too, right? Uh, the most famous about changeable opinion is, of course, is in Julius Caesar, which also is a play that speaks to the idea of succession of Elizabeth, similar to, to Hamlet, and they're written only about two years apart, one to two years apart. So it's the same theme. Julius Caesar could be read the same way as Hamlet in, in, uh, in that respect. And even King John, probably 1595, the same idea, right? You know, proper succession. Mm. In all Legit those plays, absolutely, in all mm. those plays, who's going to replace Elizabeth? So what yeah. do you think Shakespeare is trying to say then about succession in Hamlet and in King Lear? It's a very complicated matter, and, and so I, I don't propose any finality to, to the answer. To, but, but one thing is, you need a, a monarch who is perceived to be legitimate. I think that's important. Perceived by the public, by the public, and, yeah. and, and the court, you know, because yeah. of course, you know, they, they do have an impact on one another, right? They they influence each other. What makes it an even more interesting question, I think, is what role does be it the truth or the myth of divine right play in creating that perception? I don't think Shakespeare would have ever come out and said publicly, "I don't believe in divine right." That would have been way too dangerous. Now, mm -hmm. did he? I don't know. We can't know these things. I mean, we just can't. But based on the but evidence of the texts of the plays, what do you think? It's not clear. And, and that's famously captured in King Lear by Gloucester's line, as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport, which is challenged by Edgar, who says, no, they're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. You know, we're paid back for our abuse of others. The debate in King Lear is very clearly articulated on both sides. Sorry, which, which uh, about you know the role of the gods, and and that goes to the question also of a do gods exist? The question of theodicy. Albany and Edgar say no. The gods are treated as the way we're supposed to be treated. It's us. We we're the ones who make the problems. We're the ones who create the, the evil in the world. It's not the gods. It's Greek. Very very mm -hmm. clearly. And and obviously very Christian too. I mean, you know, the medieval Christians, the theologians talked a lot about this. St. Thomas, of course, and, and before that, Augustine. Uh, these are the giants, of course, but there were many others, obviously. Mm. 
And that question about the role of the gods is very well articulated. So you can't, I think, point to Shakespeare and say, you know, I think he went one way or not the other. I, I don't yeah. think that's possible. The play is very clearly dichotomous. Both no, plays. For sure. The, the difference between the two plays is here, we may as well bring this up about King Lear. King Lear, of course, is a play that's set in a pre-Christian Britain. He makes that abundantly clear. He never mentions Jesus. He never mentions even God. You know, it's always the gods, right? Jove and Jupiter and so on and so forth. And that's very important because, first of all, if you're going to challenge the existence of God, you don't want to do it as a Christian, especially when James is not friendly to the idea. Remember, it was a capital offense to be an atheist in England. King Lear is from uh, Geoffrey Monmouth, supposed to be you know, a historical king. He wasn't. I mean, obviously, it's a legendary figure, and probably Shakespeare, you know, did he know that? Probably he knew. I don't think everybody believed that Lear and Arthur were real kings. Supposedly 7th, 8th century BC, so it is properly set, you know, in Christian Britain. Obviously, there are so many biblical allusions in the play that, you know, it's probably one of the most Christian plays. So what you have is a play that challenges a lot of the ideas of divinity. It doesn't throw them out. It just raises them as questions. Because as I say, Edgar and Albany are very much theologically minded. That is to say, if you want to put it this way, they're Christian characters. Quotation marks around the word Christian. Gloucester, too, I think, you know, in the end, doesn't deny God's existence. He just says that they, they kill us for the sport. Well, he's now, saying Edmund, that they're a, different, they're a different kind of God than the Christian God. Oh, very much so. Yeah, yeah. that's right. It's not the Christian-loving God. Yeah. Edmund, uh, clearly, he would fall into the atheistic camp, mm -hmm. as probably Cornwall does. So Shakespeare, is he's airing both sides of the debate as such. He's putting the arguments in the mouths of various characters, but because he's providing both sides of the debate, anyone who would try to prosecute or mm -hmm. persecute him would have difficulty, sure. just as you are. Sure. So his, his objective then in dealing with this question about the divine rights of kings and succession is to bring it into the public eye, to enable or to prompt the public to think about these issues because what? There's no news media, what? there's no... That's difficult to, to articulate. Did he think that the public would grasp all these issues? Probably not. Now, yeah. the educated people, of course, he, I'm sure, because it was performed in court, Boxing Day, I think, 1606. I think that, in the end, Shakespeare was true to his art. And what I mean by that is that if the question had to be raised in order to, to make that character as real as possible, he went with it. He, he was very clearly concerned about his art. Because those characters, how, how could they not be considered real? I mean, they are real. Now, uh, do we encounter them all the time? We encounter aspects of them all the time, of course. It was famously said that Hamlet is all of us, you know. The point is that, you know, we know people like Edmund. We know people like Edgar. We, we, know, we know people you know, like, like Regan and, and Cordelia and Lear. And Lear is not the nicest man in the world. I mean, let's not uh, kid ourselves here. He's needy. He's yearning. He's needy and he's authoritarian and, uh, and abusive. But does he deserve to be treated the way he was treated? No, probably not. Gloucester, too, is foppish. He believes Edmund right away. He doesn't even question the, the possibility that maybe you know, he's been set up. Uh, Edgar, that is to say, he right away denies Edgar, even though he had just spent a couple of hours of pleasantness with him. There is something strange about these old men. And we know people like that. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that they are exactly like that, flesh and blood. No, of course not. These are obviously constructed characters, but they are characters. They're not types. Yeah, they're, they're not being put there for ulterior motive, as you say. These characters are designed to be realistic 
complicated. Yes, that's right. And, and they allow for the proper debate to go on, whatever it is. Uh, clearly, the idea of succession and the idea of who should rule us and how do we determine who's going to rule us, I mean, these are very complicated questions. You see, in our society, we're secularly minded. The question has been taken care of, basically. We, we, you know, we have an election every four or five that's years. That's right. And, and, you know, we've moved beyond the idea of only the church can determine this and that. And, and obviously, that, that wasn't you know, the reality in, uh, in the time, but it was closer to the reality. We forget that even as far as uh, Napoleon, when he takes the crown and puts it on his own head, you know, instead of the Pope doing it, that's a very important moment. I mean, it speaks so loudly about fundamental issues. And that wasn't that long ago, you know. I mean, <coughs> Napoleon, that's only 200 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And, and you know, in the history of the world, that's nothing. That's, you know, that's a, that's a second. We, we are secondarily minded, but, but the Elizabethans were very religious. The way I like to think of it is this way. If the question of succession, uh, the question of divine right of kings, wasn't such an important matter, then James would not have felt the need to publish his book about it. A book is published because there's obviously chatter about it. Um, you know, you couldn't speak too loudly about it, you know, in front of the monarch, because <laughs> you know it could have been quite dangerous. <laughs> and so, if he felt the need to reaffirm divine right, well, that says something. So clearly, it was important to him. Clearly, he understood that there were some people who opposed him. Clearly, he felt that the idea of, of a united Scotland and England, the Act of Union didn't happen until 1707 legally. It wasn't done instantaneously, you know, it, it took a long time. But what's not clear is where Shakespeare stood on the issues. Simply because if he, if he did come out and state a position, mm -hmm. he risked his life. That's true. I, I do think, though, that he was a monarchist. Let me explain that through, through King John briefly, and I know it's a play that's little read these days, unfortunately. It's, it's a great play. Yeah. It is a brilliant I play. I find that it's probably, it's got so much raw mm -hmm. material in it that maybe not quite as polished as the more with better known plays, it's, but the, the yeah, lines... Yeah, it's an earlier play for sure, mm -hmm. probably 1595. Here's, I think, the way to capture this idea. King John, of course, you ask anybody, you know, what's he famous for, everybody will tell you the Magna Carta, right? Yeah, which he was forced to sign in 1215. It doesn't deserve even a mention in King John, the play of King John. The Magna Carta is not mentioned at all. Now why is that? That's because the Elizabethans, and well before them even, the public felt that the Magna Carta took away the legitimacy of the monarch, that it reduced its, its mm -hmm. power. Mm -hmm. Now for us, that's a, why would they believe that, you know, rule of law? But that wasn't for them. For them, the monarch is God on earth. These noblemen were uh, imposing their will. That's right, imposing their will, trying to, to take away the power mm -hmm. of the monarchy and therefore the power of God. It's not a long stretch. Uh, Shakespeare doesn't mention it. Now, does that mean that he believed that the monarch ought to be absolutist? I don't know, but, but certainly I don't think that he would have argued for the abolition of the monarchy, for example. It would, have been, it would have been curtailing their power that they would have been and arguing for. That's right, and, and the monarch was at the center of their life, right? I mean, you know, mm -hmm. they couldn't think outside the monarch. Uh, Which explains, of course, why so many of his plays are, are centered on... Mm -hmm. Well, and, and they, they provided, of course, great stories, didn't they? I mean, you know, all the Henrys and, you know, the usurpation, Richard II, and all, I mean, these are wonderful stories, right? They provided ready-made narrative. Shakespeare was, I mean, he never invented a story. No. He, he added to a story, he subtracted from a story, mm. he manipulated the story, uh, which is a very difficult thing. People, you know, well, he didn't have any plots, but they try that yourself, you know. Mm. Well, what's so brilliant, too, is he, he takes history and he brings it to the present. Yeah, he really does, I think, argue that the role of history has a lot 
to teach us not for knowing you know x y and z as much as showing how it could teach us through examples through mm -hmm. the mistakes of others what was rightly done what was wrongly done and so on and so forth mm -hmm. and therefore it always has a bearing on what we do and and can we learn from it and that's really what he was in other words the moral instruction uh, is what I would say. He did believe in its ability to teach us. And, and, and I think King Lear, many people thought him to be a historical character, probably not the uh, literati, uh, but, but certainly generally people did, I think. From that perspective, it certainly was instructive. The big change in King Lear, which Shakespeare famously made, was, of course, in taking the story of King Lear, which is found as a, with a happy ending, and he alters it into a horrid, uh, utterly pessimistic ending. That is something that we can learn from too. For whatever reason, he didn't believe that there should be a happy ending to King Lear. Well, and you look at Hamlet, and as you've said before, everyone dies. It's yeah. a bloodbath, and what happens is probably what would have happened if Norway had beaten Denmark that's in right. the first place. And, and that's really a, 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 you know, a, a very ironic moment. And you know, why, why does Shakespeare do that? You know, he obviously wanted a revenge tragedy. Revenge tragedies never end happily. So he was true to the to the genre. But he also gives us that, that famous line by Polonius, you know, when he names all these genres, you know, the tragical, historical, tragical, pastoral, historical, and so on and so forth. Poem unlimited, scene undividable, scene undividable, poem unlimited, actually. Which means that, which I think is a, is a self-reflexive moment where I think Shakespeare is saying to us, I don't think you can figure out this play with finality. Because that scene is, is, I think, you can lift it and you can say it's sort of an observation on the whole play. Scene individable and, and poem unlimited. You know, how could you limit how you read this poem? And of course, they are poems that plays. Mm. So it's true. And, and I think that while it's true to the revenge tragedy genre, the fact is that it spells the end of Denmark. And mm. that's a very pessimistic... Well, why should it spell the end of Denmark? Why not just spell the end of the Hamlet uh, family line? Why does Denmark have to, have to disappear? I don't know, but it is a highly pessimistic play too. Just in coming to a conclusion, then, well, maybe maybe we can't. Uh, maybe that's the conclusion. Yeah. But uh, perhaps you could summarize your thoughts on Hamlet and Lear and the examination of succession. What you're saying is that Shakespeare has taken history, he's brought it to the current situation, and he's presented the major positions in the debate of the current day. And like all great works of fiction, it's almost like a trial run without all the death. The death's right. on the stage, it's not in right. real life. I mean, if I understand the question correctly, there's truth to that in the sense that clearly Elizabeth becomes this wonderful monarch who actually even makes a better England than Henry. In that sense, that's a comedy, not a tragedy, right? Now, in the real life. In real know. life, yeah. yeah, yeah. And even after that, I mean, James comes to the throne now, he wasn't nearly as, as shrewd or as good a monarch as Elizabeth, but nonetheless it did not spell the end of England. I mean, eventually it led to the interregnum and all that stuff, but nonetheless mm. England has survived and continues to survive, right? Was Shakespeare uh, saying that the trajectory of life is necessarily tragic? I wouldn't say so. His final plays were romances, right? What we call romances. They didn't call them romances. That is to say, they were comedies. Uh, in the end, uh, things came out well. These two plays in particular. But these two plays, I don't know. And I the mean, timing of them. That was when he was writing the great tragedies. That's true. These two are, are part of his so-called great tragedies. The others, of course, being Macbeth and Othello. 
but they are pessimistic, absolutely. And even the, the comedies he wrote at about that time were not exactly comedic in the sense we understand them. They're problematic, right? They're, they're almost uh, sad. But I think he, he certainly went through a phase where life is kind of tragic. If we were to group his plays in the sense of just tragedies and comedies, then you'd have to include the history plays and the, and the Roman plays as part of the tragedies, mm -hmm. and they would by far exceed the number of comedies. But if we maintain the divisions that, that have since been adopted for Shakespeare, tragedies, Roman plays, histories, comedies, romances, then clearly there are more comedies than tragedies. The great ones. The are great tragedies. ones are, uh, absolutely. And, and what point do you want to make about these two plays and Shakespeare's take on succession? And I think, right I think he was problematizing the very notion of divine right of kings. I think he, he was aware that it's, it's under challenge and that, in fact, political life is much more, shall we say, pragmatic and harsh than, than the concept of divine rights would say. He understood that politics is much more shrewd and much more harsh and much more cynical and, and often unjust. That very idea of divine right of kings was under challenge in the day, and, and it had been for some years, most famously by Machiavelli, but there were many others. And I think this is part of Shakespeare's contribution to that debate. Very good. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. Anytime. I'll be speaking with uh, Joseph Curry, who's a professor of uh, English at St. Francis Xavier University in Antigonish, Nova Scotia. Thanks again. Thanks, Nigel.